I always made a goal that for not very long do I want to be the smartest person in the room. And I mean, I'm an ex-football player, so I'm a little bit of a blunt instrument anyway, but I would assert that we all should seek to not be the smartest person in the room. The only way to become an all-star is to be around and play on an all-star team. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today, I speak with my friend, Mark Sims, the CEO of Fikes, a commercial services and product company offering services that include everything from specialty cleaning, pest control, even ambient scenting services, as well as selling thousands of products, consumable products, businesses have to buy every day. So very innovative doing products and services in a non-sexy B2B space. His business is super impressive, does high eight figures, but what's more impressive is how he went after this model of a boring business to build an amazing company that allowed him to launch his own private equity fund that has done over 10 acquisitions. This episode's a winding road filled with really cool stories and tactics that can help you. We talk about his investment thesis for his private equity fund, why he opts for businesses that align with his superpower. He looks at, do they have recurring revenue or not? And other things that will make or break if they're going to buy into a deal. He also talks about his superpower of sales and how to be really strong at it and common mistakes most people are making. We then go down the path of, you know, he played college football at a D1 program. He's an outside linebacker. This is a big dude. You used to have a mullet. He talks about the one skill set he got from football that's made him amazing as a business owner that I think you'll you'll like. Uh, we get into the origin story of Fikes. He started out of a storage unit and has grown into a massive company with over four different locations and serves 5,000 clients. So this episode is packed. If you're looking to do something a little non-traditional, I would definitely check this one out. Or if you're someone that's, hey, looking to buy a company, hear how he has done it the right way. This is a really fun one. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Mark Sims. All right, today on the podcast, I have Mark Sims. I've been wanting to get on for a while. I joined this entrepreneurship group and there was a retreat in san diego i was by a fire talking to people all of a sudden this huge dude walked over and dropped this wisdom on me and my friend and then floated away i was like who was that guy like oh that's mark sims and ever since i've really enjoyed getting to know you man i feel like you're always helping me out with advice but glad you're here happy to be here jim i i was excited to be on this as well yeah. And so Mark, he's been someone I, I really have enjoyed getting out through you. I basically reached out to him. I was like, can I just come to your office and get advice from you? And he was kind enough to buy me lunch, take me out to his office and, and hang out. And so this has been a long time coming. And Mark, one thing that I'm super interested in, we just did this, my kind of small acquisition of, of, of buying a company that I'm super excited about. It took forever to do and made a bazillion mistakes along the way. And it's this idea of acquisition entrepreneurship, right? Don't start something, buy something. And this is something that you have done. This is something that 
you have pulled off. I would love to just get your thoughts on, you know, at what point did you decide to make that move from like, hey, I've got this business going well, but when should I start looking into other ventures and like your thought process and going down that path? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it really, and by, by the way, I saw that on LinkedIn and I'm excited for you. It, it looks like to be an exciting company and product. I, I think really, if we think about just acquisition, why we look to acquire anything, it's really about growth. And I believe in my experience, growth requires pushing our capacity, whether we choose to build it or buy it. And I've found, I've, I've bought and acquired businesses that are in my lane, that are you know in my facility service and product distribution space. And then thanks to you know, entrepreneurs organization that we're both part of, Jim, I was able to meet some great peers that we had seen different skill sets and some degrees of subject matter expertise in one another to think about how could we synergize that? How could we all invest in something while also making direct influence and impact together? So I think I've been pretty fortunate to uh, be able to be a part of businesses that I wouldn't have otherwise been in because of being an EO, but then also just really making the choice anytime I can to push my capacity to make myself uncomfortable. And I believe that not only is it a good net worth growth strategy, but a great personal growth strategy to think about acquiring because it's also acquiring knowledge and also you, know, you acquire relationships and people through acquisitions or you bring on more people to be able to, to handle uh, and maintain as well as scale. So I just think it's got... Not that it doesn't come with a few uh, challenges along the way. And I remember you talking about this as you were like kind of talking through what makes a good investment thesis. And one thing you said was this idea of like, I also don't want to buy a job. It's like, I kind of already have a job. And so as and I, that really stuck with me. And so as you like created your investment thesis, how do you think through like, what's the right fit for you? And also you have some like, superpowers as a founder and an unfair advantage and how that like plays into like what makes a good investment or not? Well, I think that as important as the product is, it's really, I've seen it time and again, and I, I've recognized where I failed that I underestimated the value of people. And that, those are the people, predominantly leadership within an organization that are either there and existing. If it's a scenario where somebody, say a previous president, founder stays on for a period of time or you partner, or you found a great individual that you've had conversations with that you would bring into the organization or that you recruit into the organization. So I think the people piece is critical, even as much as the product itself. And I think just also, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of businesses that have reoccurring revenues. So also taking a look at it when, when it is time to take a look beyond the people to the product is that what type of business model is it and what type of stress test has it endured over time or in a circumstance that was potentially difficult like we all went through during the pandemic is how would it either succeed or fail during disruptive times? So really looking at, at, at it from all lenses. 
Yeah, it's so funny. It's like the more you get deeper into business, I feel like the more simple it is. It's like you want to have amazing people to do well and do something that's just recurring revenue. Because I've been a part of those business models where it's acquisition based. Think like Casper mattress. You're like people buy a mattress every seven years. That's a tough business to be in because you're always filling the funnel. But if you can close them once and it's they're paying every month or every year, that's that's magic, right? And and you mentioned you've done multiple investments. Like how many like companies have you either acquired or invested into? Like, is that something you're actively trying to, to grow? Absolutely. It's in the double digits. And in fact, this week I have a conversation with a service company and am looking to present an LOI. So excited about where that goes. It's a company that's been around for 30 years and has some great clients and just looking to see if it's a great opportunity for that owner to turn their company over to somebody that they've come to to trust and know that will take good care of their clients. And it's a great opportunity for us to carry on that legacy and our team to be involved in that. But I would also want to, you talked about uh, customer acquisition. And I think that back to the people piece, just to share digress a little bit, is that you know, for, I, I enjoy sales. I, en- I enjoy that piece of it. I think as we've gotten to know each other, um, particularly from a B2B perspective. But when it comes to B2C, that's certainly not my expertise, but one of the businesses I'm involved in is uh, a company called Sendicake.com. And that, again, has been successful all because of the people. But my past form mate and partner is such an amazing customer acquisition strategist that it, it's fun that us partners are able to integrate areas that that we add value, but he he is so good. And then one of his former employees who is the CEO of that business is so creative and engaged. It's just really fun to see a business that I would never have imagined being involved in, but then being brought in for the, the few things I could help with, but just seeing magic take place because everybody is using their, their as you referenced earlier, superpower to see that success unfold. And that's sendacake.com, like send like a birthday cake? like send a cake. There's all kinds of, you should check out. It's, uh, I, I take no credit for the creativity. Uh, I've just been along for the ride and supporting it, but it is, a, it's a, it's, you know, it's one of, one of the great companies and they're, you know, always coming out with new products and innovations and it's pretty special. Wow. This is a really good way. So I have 127,000 reviews <laughs> on sending cakes and any, any insights on those customer acquisition strategies they did, or is it just that they're always making noise and doing new launches? I think that it's just, it's just the secret sauce of, of the CAC model on B2C that one of my partners there really, really understands well and has done a great job. And, and yeah, it's, I'm amazed all the time at what, what he's able to do. That's exciting. So you've done over double digits of, of buying or investing into companies. And is that all from from Fikes as far as like that's funding that or did you raise outside capital? It's so myself and two past EO form mates operate as a, a small private equity group. So we cool. to date haven't had to raise any capital. We've been able to do that ourselves in those ventures. And then for anything I've done that is more Fikes related, I've done it myself at, at times with the, uh, some financing that I've received from a bank or even just businesses I acquire that have owner financing scenarios that work good for the the seller that 
maybe doesn't want to take all of the money up front or to parse it out for for obvious reasons. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I feel like I'm conservative to a fault with risk tolerance, with investments and money and that because I don't know why I'm, I'll be, I'll like default to doomsdayer. It's like, oh, I need like all this cash under the mattress in case things go wrong. But like we're an agency, it's recurring revenue. It's pretty predictable. And our, even our NRM CFOs, like you don't have to like always be prepared for the worst thing to go wrong. Cause the, the flip side is what if we took some of that cash and we're more aggressive and invested or use your line of credit or did these things? Did you ever struggle with? that psychology of money as we look to these investments, because this is your hard earned money that you're then putting into these other ventures. Like how did you go from the one company to multiple as you're like managing that psychology of like risk and, and money? I think I felt as though it was about a decade ago, as far as outside of, of the, the Fikes lane, it was about a decade ago, we were all sitting around at a dinner talking about if we were to have a business together, what would that be? Why would we want to have it? And what impact could we all make in it? And I think it really, and at the time it was a period where it was difficult. I couldn't find any targets in my industry because companies were either, uh, you know, small where you would buy a job or they were so large that we'd have to go out and raise capital. There was no sort of middle, of the road size organizations like mine. And I felt that maybe it was time to step outside to, to learn and grow and see what skills I, I had that it could be applied. And a lot of skills I don't have that I could learn from other entrepreneurs in, in other businesses. So they really just came from that conversation. There was originally about seven of us that were interested and then it got distilled down to there being three left. And that's the three individuals in working knowledge ventures that I, I continue to invest in predominantly with today. That's very cool. And one thing you've mentioned is like, okay, you've got these other founders, you all have your own superpowers. Clearly one of yours that we talked about is sales and also people and team building. And you were mentioning one company you bought where you're helping the sales team going through their scripts, watching their calls to help them get that down. This is a very self-serving question I'm about to ask you by the way. <laughs> as, as you like look at a sales team and they're doing their pitch, they're doing their talk, what are the common mistakes you see being made on those sales calls? Because we, we, we've we have ramped up our sales team and I'm trying to give that feedback and I'm, I'm always interested in how people manage their sales teams to, to like, what are they doing wrong on those calls and what should they change to do differently? Yeah. It, and it's, I love sales and not for what's great about it, but what can actually be resurrected from common mistakes was generally involve a displacement of priorities going in and not clearly understanding objectives and then mismanaged communication methods. So what I mean by that is if you think about a lot of sales calls, there tends to be a lot of talking, which involves telling and selling versus <laughs> not near enough. I mean, we think yeah. about when we get pitched, not near enough pausing and peeling the onion back as we ask and understand. So, because we think about it, it's really the objective is to learn 
to build and, and learn what the value is from that client, not not verbally vomit of what we presume it might be to build trust. And then from that, as, as there's reciprocated sharing to find fit. So I think that is, that's really what I see often. And, and it's really industry agnostic is there's so much telling and selling, not near enough asking and understanding. And there's way too much focus on the widget and not near enough emphasis on the why. And so, I mean, we all are emotional creatures. We all have emotional reasons for buying and to maneuver those conversations in such a way where we're able to, I mean, one of the philosophies we have here at Fikes is the three A's. It's acknowledge, ask, and answer, and generally answer in the form of a credibility building statement. So, you know, obviously we think about the, you know, hi, my name is Mark Sims. I'm from here. And immediately going into the introduction, and this is what my company does, we haven't yet acknowledged that person that we're actually speaking to, which is the whole purpose of why we're there if we're selling a product or a service. So making sure that we acknowledge that individual, acknowledge the amount of time they have available for us, uh, acknowledge what's important to them. So really acknowledge. And upon that, permission to ask those questions to get be curious and to better understand more about that. Be all in on what is important to them. And then, you know, our answers, I mean, the, the question that we that, that all of us get in, in any industry is how much does that cost or what is your price? And not not be afraid to say, I love talking about price. I guess, can I ask some more questions so I can get a better idea of what that might be for you based on what it is you and so, you know, not just throwing out a number, because once we throw that number out, we may mistakenly throw out the wrong number. It may be too high or it may be too low. It's premature. We need to understand the problem and fall in love with the problem before we try to seek a solution that involves a said price valuation. So that's just at a high level. I love sales and I, I love it because I believe no matter how long we all do it, and I, I still make mistakes at it whether coaching or directly, is that there's lots of improvements that can come from it if we continually practice on the fundamentals. Yeah, I love the three A's that you mentioned. I love just the framework of asking why, because I think of it as like my four-year-old is in the why phase where she asks why five times and then you're talking about the meaning of life. And so I I like that because as I've been like working with our, our new sales team, it's like, I, I was giving them a script how to sell the features. I'm like, I'm doing it wrong. I need to give them the questions to ask instead of this. And I was really kicking myself because I like was like I was like, forget everything I just said. We're going down this path. And man, I, I'm with you. Sometimes like two years ago, asked me I'd be like, oh, I'm amazing at sales. I'm really getting now. I'm I'm kind of humbled as I'm trying to train people. Like I don't know anything, and I'm I'm going back to those fundamentals. But that that's super helpful. And it's one of those things where if you want to be a, like I feel like a, a good founder. Like knowing sales, knowing, you know, how to like do the transaction is, is everything. It's at the end of the day, as you rise up, that's what you have to be kind of good at. I think that it even to your point, Jim, I think that as a leader, if we think about presenting to our teams, there's a certain degree of communication, understanding and how we, how we ask questions of our teams, how we acknowledge them and how we also answer in the form of vision and 
opportunity and how we can all reach this optimal apex of company growth and personal growth in, in its, its apex of alignment. So I think it's beyond even sales. I think it's leadership. I think it's it's management and people development. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, we have individuals here that are great with working with our manufacturers, not just because we pay our bills fast, but because they're good at the three A's as it, as it pertains to everything we do in communication from negotiating the best overall value from our suppliers so that we can then in turn pass that on to our clients, whomever they might be in, in all industries. Yeah. 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 It's not just selling to customers. It's, it's relationships and, and everything. So it's so interesting. Like, I feel like you have such a growth mindset of, of learning and always like pushing yourself. I want to get into like the origin story of you being a founder, but I want to like put a, like a pause there. Talk to me about Mark before business, before like starting a company, like what were you doing? What was that path? Cause I, I know you were like an athlete in college. Talk about Mark pre-business world. Are you are you talking, Jim, Mark, when I had a big mullet? <laughs> I, I mean, are we going that far back? Is it like Brian Bosworth's mullet or like it was a pretty it was a pretty loud mullet? I mean, it, it used to be coming out the back of my helmet. I mean, you could see it on game film. So it was <laughs> it was there. So I, I looked very different. I, I my wife always says that you know you would not have recognized Mark if you met him in college because he was huh. a much larger human and he didn't have a neck and he had a whole bunch of hair. So <laughs> yeah. Like to talk about like the parallels of like your college athlete, you played football. Like what did you learn from that that you take to, to the business world? And, and, and before you do that, don't be humble. Give us your greatest football highlight. What's your like peak football moment? I remember one game as a junior, I controlled the game with how much I was in the backfield, both disrupting plays of whether it was the running back, quarterback. I also I was an outside linebacker, defensive end. So kind of that kind of like a Clay Matthews. I mean, you referenced that very similar position. Yeah. So just wreaking havoc um, to where uh, I don't. I mean, it's a team win, but it's always fun to look back on games to know how much of an impact you made and that you were you were sort of. I mean, for receivers, it's being uncoverable. For uh, running backs, it's being untackable. For a for a defensive player, it's being unblockable, and that's that's what that felt like. Yeah, it's like you're in the zone, right? And it's just like you're in that deep state where it's just everything's clicking. That's that, that's pretty cool. But yeah. So, what are those parallels that like you took from like being a linebacker in college and then going to the business world? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of I mean, you, you play the games how you practice and I think that what sports in general does is equip you with a forced function that you have to be willing to subject yourself to discomfort whether that is early morning wind sprints whether that is weight room where you're maxing out. I mean, that's, that's what you call it. I mean, you know, you're always seeking to max out whether it's a, a lower amount of reps and, and, or if you're doing the highest amount of reps at a given weight. So you're, you're maxing out, you're maxing out in terms of your cardio when you're, when you're running, you know, for stamina. So I think that piece, I mean, you're also 
I mean, as a college athlete, you're you're studying game film, and you still have you still have your your your, your credits that you have to cover in order to be eligible. So you're traveling and. And I think for a lot of college athletes, wherever they might be, I mean, for me, I was, a, you know, smaller town at Montana State, so you're kind of a big duck in a little pond. And But you look at a lot of famous athletes, so that, that wasn't me, but famous athletes that get a lot of fanfare. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of distractions, so you have to be really focused. And I, 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 we've all read that the most important aspect to success of any leader, business person, entrepreneur, et cetera, is grit. And I, I can't think of anything that equips us more. I, I've not had an experience in the military. I would, I would, I would presume it's very similar, but just having to subject oneself to, to discomfort again and again and again, consistently such that that becomes the state of the state that you are familiar with such that it doesn't phase you. And I I am so grateful because I look at startup phase, at different growth pain phases. I look at the pandemic when here we were this, you know, these recession resistant business models as we all have, and then all of a sudden lose your revenue or most of your revenue overnight and have to pivot fast. I think that, you know, if, if we're all shell-shocked, uh, and I'm a big believer that the fast eat the slow, the big don't eat the small. So I think just being ready to just, you know, after you got your face pounded in the, in the dirt to just get right back up and get going again. So I, I think that's what athletics and business sort of have that, that beneficial parallel. That's so interesting. I just interviewed Ryan Smith from Leon C in New York, and he is a former kind of like money ball guy, but for professionals football club in Europe. And they would see like, now, are they going to spend millions of dollars on an athlete? And he, and he took that Moneyball methodology and put it to founders. And he found that the number one trait of a founder is going to be successful is around grit. And it's it's so interesting. Like you say that, he said that literally two weeks ago. How, how do you train or teach grit or put people in those situations? I'm thinking not even only for my team or myself, but even like my kids. It's like, I give them kind of a cushion pampered life. It's like, how do I get a little grit in them? Like, do I take my four-year-old and just throw on like third Ave and bell and be like, figure it out. Like <laughs> how, how do you teach grit or create circumstances where people can go through that? It's a good, ex- it's a good question. I think that from my experience, it's been through showing it by example in what it is that we can do as leaders. I mean, for instance, I always say, even though a hot tub's more comfortable, I'm much more comfortable in a cold tub based on my objective, which is to make myself uncomfortable. So I think it's, whether it's physical challenges or whether it's mental challenges, doing something, I was just, you probably can't see it, but I've got this mark on my nose I was in Baja area for Thanksgiving and I've surfed two times in my life. The waves are pretty big. And I wanted to show my son that I'm going to do things, not just of what I'm familiar with, things that I'm not familiar with and uncomfortable with. And so it was really gratifying for me to see him follow me out there and stick with it, even though we were getting pounded. And uh, I did get up and got some good waves, but I also, you know, had a surfboard that, 
Finif gave me a gave me a good uh, uppercut uh, that I had to show for. But so yeah. glad, I'm so glad I do those things. And I think that standing up and presenting or being willing to learn something that you don't know. And I think just it reminds me, I was in on a leadership meeting even earlier this week, and there was a conversation of somebody saying that they were that they really had a stressful week leading into Thanksgiving because they were taking time off and they had all these all these responsibilities and checklists and deadlines. And and there was one member of the of, of the team that sort of empathized and really almost wanted to know how they could make that different next time, which I appreciate that intent. My perspective was different. And I instead said, I, you know, sounds like sounds like it was a week that really stressed you out. I I guess when when we think about that, where did it make you better? When you're when you're confronted with that situation the next time, how will you respond? And what did you learn last week that you can apply? And really this individual who's a great team member has been been with us a, a, a few years said, you know, I really, you spoke a year ago about how stress ends up equaling success if it's in the right mindset and framework. And I see exactly what you mean. It took, it took that situation last week from really to resonate. So I think it's, it's all those things. Man, those are really good examples. I'm even thinking through like, when you go through those stressful times, if you do it the right way, you come out so much stronger. Like during the pandemic, we lost a lot of our revenue. We had to get real good at closing leads quick and it was horrible and stressful, but we like somehow pulled it off and we were able to take that. Even recently, like we got a little too fat and we weren't tied on how we ran the business and it really came to bite us. In the last six months, it was all about efficiency and those were painful lessons, but we've come out of it lean and you're making me see this silver lining on it as opposed to just being like, man, what is this ride going to throw at me next? But it, but it's so true. If you can just be resilient and last, man, it, you, you can leave something re- really cool. And a lot of confidence comes from embracing discipline and embracing the suck at times. <laughs> I mean, I think that's going to be the, the title of the episode, Embracing the Suck. That's pretty good. So we're almost, we're like 30 minutes in and I haven't even had you introduce yourself or say what Pikes is, which I'm pretty proud of myself. That's like maybe a record. It's maybe a horrible interview etiquette, but I think let's talk about the origin story of Pikes and Pikes and how it came to be and like how this all got started. Well, I used to sell in different parts of the country and facility services and some events occurred for sake of brevity such that I moved back to Washington State and really was at a point in my life where I didn't really trust. I think about all the people on my team now in different states and regions and parts of the world that I trust and rely upon. Some of I don't even get to talk too much and how wonderful that is. But in the early days, it was really a perspective based on what occurred that if it is to be, it's up to me. So I came back. Fortunately, I had been very frugal with savings and I don't believe I had a real investable business anyway. And so I got a 10 by 10 storage unit in Tacoma, Washington. I bought some products that I put on pallets and I bought a van and it started with, with me. And I just went around and cold call prospected businesses 
got them set up on reoccurring services with a simple suite of products and just went one after the other. And then of course, hired more people, bought more vans, bought more product. We're, we're, we're not in the storage unit anymore. We have multiple distribution centers in different parts of the West Coast. We're headquartered here outside of Seattle and Federal Way, but started, it was very humble beginnings. And I could still remember in this very humble, inexpensive storage unit complex, there was a, a metal scrapper that had a business down the way. And for some reason, he felt that it was okay to drive by me and to scoff at my business and say, so are you running a service business out of here? <laughs> and laughed at me. And I, I remember being, you know, sitting there, you know, going from a point in my life once upon a time prior to that, of being able to, you know, be in a stadium where you stand up after making a play and being somebody that people knew to being there all by myself. I didn't even have it. I had a, a, a used desk and I sat on a case of, of commercial paper towels for probably the first couple of months because I told myself I was going to get a certain amount of revenue before I'd buy anything and move out of there. And yeah, so I, you know, in the early days, I had a rule called five after five, which is five sales calls after five o'clock. And fortunately it worked. That's amazing. And so what was the like service you launched on the back of? Cause you do quite a few today and were you doing everything? You're like, no, no, we, we were only doing at that time. And I should say only because it's something we've done for a long time. We were only doing sanitation, commercial sanitation, and we were doing odor, odor control. So that would be predominantly restrooms, some common areas and odor control. That was, that was really the service suite and a few products like paper towels, toilet tissue, maybe some soap. So fast forward. Now we do, we have about in our, about 3,500 products in stock at all times in any of our given, we have, you know, multiple millions of dollars of inventory. We service thousands of clients and we have access to more products than that. And we have 10 different facility services that we don't subcontract that we do directly. So everything from pest control, pressure washing, kitchen deep clean. I mean, I could, I could go on, but just a, a host of different types of, of services that we've integrated in. Because we really look at the relationships and the trust we build and the more we can do for our clients, the more valuable we are to each other. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun. Yeah. Can you speak at all to any, you don't have to answer this, you know, but like the size of the company, any ballparks so people understand the like the scale you're, you're working with? Yes. Yeah, so we have about five, 5,000 customers out of four different distribution uh, warehouses looking to acquire another one. So we're, uh, yeah, we're a, we're a quantum size company. Like EO talks about quantum size companies is 15 or more. We're, we're well, well, well above the quantum size. That's amazing, man. So I think you chose the right business model and I think I chose the wrong one because I think you, your tagline is proudly obsessed with the dirty details. And there's this like movement of boring, non-sexy businesses on the surface. But if you look at them from a PL, it's magic where it's like, you know, high recurring revenue, low turn, like scalable in the sense you can train people to do things. Like how much of that was intentional in the early days and how much was of it where, wait, the thing I chose is amazing and I'm going to like 
dig my heels into, or I'm going to go even more into this. I think that it wasn't intentional as far as the industry itself. I think it came upon a challenge of me hearing that somebody in this industry was having a hard time finding traveling salespeople that would go to certain markets for said periods of time, let's call it three or four months at a given time, stay in a crappy hotel and sell a certain amount of revenue and then have to move on to the next place and how hard that was. And, you know, looking back on it now, when I talk about earlier in this, not wanting to buy a job, that is not a job that I would want today. But thinking back about it then, having a little bit of a chip on my shoulder as a, as a young professional, I wanted to do what was hard. And so I did that, ended up really enjoy the industry because you meet so many different types of businesses and different personalities and in different regions of the country. And so it was sort of fascinating to me that all businesses needed to, I mean, our three value propositions are enhance image, save time and reduce cost. It doesn't matter what type of business you are. You know, our best clients are busy clients because they have a lot of needs, but to be able to do any of those three things at any given time for them. And so that's what really hooked me is the why, not necessarily the widget. And then we over time got very proudly obsessed with those details, those dirty details as it pertained to how we were able to accomplish that. Oh man, that's amazing. And so there's a, you know, the, this, it's not like you created some new technology or innovation. You have some huge emote around. There's other people in this space, but you like, you went from a storage unit to a massive company. That is not easy. What were the inflection points in growth? We're like, wow, I'm, I'm, I've fired myself from sales. I'm like a president. Okay. I fired myself from that. Like what were those milestones where you're able to go to that next level? And how did you have to like either change or adapt to grow with the company? So I think some of it was forced. We got to a point where it wasn't sustainable for me to do as many things that, as I was doing. I had, I would say probably about five years in, we had gotten to a size where there was, you know, now a physical warehouse location. There were people, we were somewhat spread out. We had a number of products and I was still leading most things. And coming from a place of distrust, I had to really face my fears, really take a look at myself and the ego surrounding that. And that was actually one of the reasons that I joined EO is because I felt very alone. And to be able to talk to other peer leader owner founders about how they had gotten through it because I knew how to sell, I knew how to work hard, I knew how to be committed, but I didn't necessarily know how to effectively delegate and empower people. Even though if I could have waved a magic wand, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I just didn't know exactly how to. And so EO, I always say, you know, entrepreneurs organization is the best check I write every year because I could never repay it based on the experience sharing the peer leadership group and everything it's given to me over the years. Yeah. And for people that don't know, you know, entrepreneurship organizations, a group where you have to be a founder doing over seven figures, you meet once a month and with eight other founders and you speak in a format of experience share rather than giving advice. And it's all about vulnerability and being honest and it's, it's energizing, it's inspiring, and it, it really makes me think differently. And I, I wish I, I could have or would have joined it, joined it earlier. 
Same here. Even though I've been in 15 years, I wish that I would have joined it five years prior to that. I think yeah, those yeah. of us that love EO uh, have the same sentiment, regardless of whether our, our, our stage or age. Yeah. What, like, for people out there that are, like, going through it alone, like, what are some of the benefits or reasons for having that peer group or that community? Because I think it's something that a lot of people don't think to invest in, but it's it's probably one of the biggest levers you can do for, for multiple reasons. Absolutely. That challenge us just by being in their presence, by the questions they ask, by the examples they show. And, you know, it's the only way to become an all-star is to, is to, to be around and play on an all-star team. Then that's so true because it, ra- it raises your game. And, I, and for me, I love people that think differently and approach problems from a different angle. That That's what I get really kind of inspired by. They're very cool. Well, the, the last question I like to ask everybody, which is what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Well, I've been fortunate to have a lot of nice things done for me, one of which was my very first employee who was going to work for a year and the year or two in the twilight of his career after the company he had worked for was acquired and he was a manager. His name is Chuck McElrath and he ended up working for 17 and retired at 81. And we have have an award named after him that's an esteemed annual award that we provide to to all of the individuals that live the core values and that have an amazing year. And it's a very, very big prize. But I would, I want to take a chance to reference something that just happened to me a few weeks ago on my birthday. And my, my vice president, Elizabeth Hetty, who's worked here at Fikes for 13 years, put together a video compilation of some of the most important, beloved people in my life on my birthday. And they were very sneaky about it. And they said, I was going to look at another video and then some of them were here. And it was everything from childhood friends, Chuck, as I referenced, longtime manufacturer vendors, my wife, my two boys, EO, form mates, I mean, uh, team members, and it brought me to tears. And I can't think of any material gift that I would want, I'm not very material anyway, that would have made me happier than watching that video compilation. So it was, it was almost 10 minutes and uh, uh, I, in fact, I watched it on just before I went down to Mexico for Thanksgiving and it, and it brought tears to my eyes again. It was pretty special. <laughs> That's so cool. And to pull together all those people from different phases of your life, that's uh, super sneaky and impressive. Very well done. Well, Mark, this was a blast, man. If people want to connect with you or learn more about what you're doing with Fikes or with your private equity fund, where should we direct them? Probably the easiest way, Jim, is just look on LinkedIn, Mark Sims, Fikes, and I will pop up. So that's that's the easiest place to find me. Nice. And then uh, the WKVentures.com. And one, one double bonus question. If you were starting all over today in like a dirty, non-sexy business, what would you do? Would you just redo what you're doing? Or is there a category where like, man, if I was 22... I would jump all over it. Great question. There are so many great, dirty businesses. I don't know if I could honestly choose just one. I think that is honestly a part of my acquisition strategy is I am pulling lists of different verticals to look at because I think that I don't know what I don't know. And I want to get 
inside of some of the financial successes or failures of some of those other dirty models to see which one I may want to acquire or somehow be involved in the future the most. That's a that's a vague, long-winded answer, but maybe you'll have me on in the next year or two and I can share what I learned and perhaps what I did. You know, that could be fun. We're going to do a future episode. You do that. And then I want to pitch you like 20 half-baked dirty business ideas and you could be like that bad bad okay that's interesting that that could be a really fun one that would be fun sign me up <laughs> awesome well cool well mark thank you so much for the time man i appreciate it i love it jim thank you and look forward to seeing you soon i'll give a few plugs first i send a weekly newsletter each thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me you can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where Remotely Talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A-plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.